Well, it's uh, a delight to be with you in the Word on Mother's Day. As you can imagine, any pastor who has the privilege of preaching on Mother's Day trusts that God will give an appropriate text for such a special occasion. And we, by the sovereignty of God, are in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And wouldn't you know it, the first two verses talk about spiritual babies and bottled milk. This is amazing. Now granted, what we're going to study is not nearly as cute as little babies and their bottles, but nevertheless, this is where God has us, and I trust that this message today, this time in the Word, will be a tremendous encouragement and a wisdom, not only to the mothers, but to all of us here today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, please open your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 1 through 6. Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, we're talking perhaps three or four years later, after Paul was first there and founded the church in Corinth. Here we are three or four years later. He says, even now, you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For one, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted... Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are amazing words. We know it. We know that you freely give us truth, and your Holy Spirit gives us the ability to understand. What an amazing thought that you, through your Spirit, would give us the ability to understand the mind of God, the wisdom of God, to whatever degree you, you know to be appropriate for us. So we pray this morning that you would indeed bless us with a little more of your wisdom. We humble ourselves before we and we thank you, Lord, for the truth and the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I sat with our salt group this past Thursday evening, and, and as I listened to them reflecting on the first two chapters that we recently studied, I just smiled and rejoiced in my heart thinking, they have no idea how much they are affirming the truths that we are going to study this coming Sunday. I am amazed at the Word of God. The Word of God is so true and consistent. Its message doesn't change. And it really is incredible as we look at Paul's writings. It's incredible how through his missionary journeys, through his own spiritual growth, through his, his ministry, even after years of, of persecution and years of victory and seeing God do amazing things, after all he has seen and experienced, his message never changed. We preach Christ crucified. That truth and all that it re represents, it not only saves us, it empowers us and it gives us the wisdom of God as we studied last week. And as we're going to see today, Paul is going to dive even deeper into these foundational truths. 
I'm telling you, Paul is just getting going in this book. There is no sign of stopping. So let's work our way through the first uh, six verses and even beyond that. Verse 1 says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. That is, carnal, as some of your translations say. You're worldly. You're like the unbeliever. Paul is addressing the maturity level of the Corinthian church. And he isn't beating around the bush, as you can see here. The bottom line was that these Christians, as a whole, were refusing to grow up. This was a severe case of Christian immaturity. Now, we understand that while Christians are no longer under the curse and the bondage of sin, its power, as you'll hear it referenced all throughout the New Testament, while believers are no longer under the curse of sin and its power, we do still struggle with the temptation to sin. I liked this quote by Alan Redpath. He was a British pastor and an evangelist who actually pastored Moody Church in Chicago back during the 50s and 60s. He said, The carnal Christian is a child of God, born again and on his way to heaven, but he is traveling third class. It's true. Our immaturities cause us to miss out on the best that God has to offer. There's a state of growth and faith progress that should be happening in the life of every believer. The impact and the rule of the Holy Spirit in us should be increasing with each passing day. But sadly, that wasn't the case for the church of Corinth. So Paul has to address them again as spiritual babies and even tells them as much. But like a good teacher, he goes on in verse 3 to specifically define the attributes that are characterizing them as infants. And this is very enlightening to all of us. Verse 3, he says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men, like natural, carnal, unbelieving people, the old self? prior to salvation. Verse 4, he says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Men of the flesh, just like unbelievers. Paul is still addressing, as you can see, the big picture of pride and division in the church that we looked at in chapter 1 and chapter 2. The whole, I'm of Paul, and well, I follow Apollos, etc. Bragging rights, or haughty devotion, as it's been called. It's important that we recognize that these chapters all tie together. They're a cohesive unit of truth and understanding and counsel that every believer needs to understand. Every marriage needs these truths. Every parent needs these truths, every family, every child, every friendship, etc. So what does Paul attribute specifically as the evidences, the proofs of spiritual immaturity? Jealousy and strife. In very simple terms, jealousy is the bad attitude, and strife is the bad behavior that comes from the bad attitude. You understand that every behavior stems from a heart attitude. 
Every action comes from the heart. You know the verse in Proverbs 4 well. Verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Everything comes from the heart. We see this attitude-behavior relationship in the book that we recently studied, James chapter 4, verse 3. He very specifically said, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We learn from verses like these that our struggle is not just an issue of outside worldly temptation and influence, an outside or external force pushing us and persuading us to do evil. The reality is that we still have wrong desires and attitudes in our heart that daily need to be resisted and overcome. This is very important that we understand this. No Christian is immune to pride or anger or jealousy, etc., no matter how mature we are in the faith, no matter how long we've known God for. Matter of fact, you know as well as I do, there are times where the temptations increase the more we know God. How Satan longs to defeat the believers, and surely he takes the greatest pride in defeating the mature ones. The Greek word for jealousy that uh, Paul has used here, zelos, goes back to a root word that literally means being hot, boiling as with a liquid, and it means glowing as with a metal. Jealousy isn't just a casual. It would sure be nice to have that. I mean, let me be honest with you. I think that every time one of these new vets drives by. Jealousy, on the other hand, is a boiling desire. It is a molten hot craving for something that God has not allowed me to have. Perhaps it's a possession that he's blessed someone else with. Perhaps it's attention or position or achievement that we see in others. The word has a sense of indignation and bitterness that accompanies it. It not only craves what someone else has, whether that could be right or wrong. It not only craves what they have, but it also begins to despise the person who's got it. Picture it. You put two little kids in a room with one super cool toy. And suddenly, the, the one holding the toy becomes the arch enemy of the kid who doesn't have it, right? The kid holding the toy hasn't done a thing. He's just holding the toy. And yet, he's an enemy, in a sense, to the other kid. Maybe you've seen this in your own home. Maybe you were one of those kids. Maybe you are. No, just kidding. <laughs> Paul is teaching the Corinthian church. He's teaching us that jealousy was a heart attitude or at least one of the primary attitudes that was causing disagreements, divisions, quarrels, arrogance, distraction, and wrong priorities in the church. He's addressing all of these things in the prior chapters. There was an infection of jealousy or selfish pride in the church. You don't have to think too hard here to recognize that this truth, this principle, carries right over into our homes as well and into our marriages and our friendships, relationships, etc. Listen to some cross-references on jealousy and envy. Just a few here. The, the first of which, Exodus 20, 17. The final commandment of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. What about Luke 15? 
the parable of the rebellious prodigal son who returned home in repentance and humility. An incredible, an incredible parable that Jesus used. Verses, uh, Luke 15, verses 25, reading forward says, Now his older son, that is the, uh, the, the older son of the father, was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And the servant said to him, Your brother, that is your younger brother, has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Can you picture this? Began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted, fattened calf for him. The father said to the son, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. Jesus used this parable to clearly reveal the shockingly terrible nature of jealousy. This older brother passionately and bitterly wanted a goat and a party more than the, the return of his younger brother. The selfish nature of jealousy warps our values in such a sad way. What a tragedy to see this happening all around us. People throw away valuable, long-time relationships because of jealousy. They choose temporary pleasure over true love and friendship. They disregard the most obvious truths and commands and blessings of Scripture because they so badly want for themselves something that is not right or theirs to be had. Jealousy is a dangerous, dangerous attitude that every one of us believers must vigilantly be on guard against. Proverbs 27.4 shows the nature, the incredible nature of jealousy. It says, wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? Let me take you back to James 3 real quick. I love how James and Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in their separate letters, so often write the same thing. Listen to the incredible parallels. Here in 1 Corinthians, remember we see Paul driving home these, these lessons on the heart attitude of jealousy and pride, and he's emphasizing the importance of God's wisdom versus the lie of the world and the foolishness of humanism. Here's what James said in his letter, James 3, 14 to 18. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, 
then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is sown in, who, excuse me, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a different picture than the strife and division Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church. Over and over again, we find that Scripture affirms Scripture. Strife and division and arguing, disorder and every evil thing are the result of jealousy and selfish ambition, arrogance, and the wisdom of man. How much better that we recognize the importance of and pursue the wisdom from above. The beautiful list that we just read in James of being pure and peaceable, gentle and reasonable, etc. How much better to ride in first class where we experience contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment and, and peace and joyfulness for others and gladness to see their success and their happiness because we understand that their blessing is our blessing. We are one. We are in this together for the work and the glory of God. How much better to pursue and obtain these things. Oh, to see the day when one of our little ones gets an ice cream cone and their brother or sister says, I'm so happy for you. Every time I watch you lick that rainbow sherbet, my heart rejoices for you. We might not be there yet, but that's the attitude. That's the attitude that we want in us first, and then in our children, our families, in our church family, etc. I love this next part of the chapter here, back in 1 Corinthians. This is Paul's antidote to the problem just mentioned. Praise God. Scripture so clearly addresses problems, but then it always comes back with a solution. That is the mercy and the love of God. Here Paul gives the antidote to the problem just mentioned. This is the solution to jealousy and strife, particularly in the church. And the solution begins with a right perspective, a right understanding, God's wisdom on the matter. As we saw last week and prior, without God's wisdom on the matter, we will honestly, perhaps somewhat innocently, come to wrong conclusions. We have to have a right perspective. Verse 5, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. <clears throat> now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is an interesting set of verses here. Let's make four observations. First, why would Paul remind them in verse 6 that God was causing the growth in the church? God was responsible for the spiritual achievement and success. Why would Paul remind them of that? He reminds them because to some degree or another, they thought they were causing the growth. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. Secondly, 
Why would Paul remind them in verse 7 that they were virtually nothing in the growth and success of the church? Because to some degree or another, they thought they were something. Third, why would Paul remind them that all the laborers in the church are one? Because to some degree or another, they saw themselves as separate entities. They were operating on their own. They clearly lacked the agreement and the one-mindedness that Paul called for in the introduction of the book. Unlike, shall we say, unlike a, a skilled rowing team in a racing kayak, all functioning in perfect sequence together for the highest efficiency, unlike that kind of team, it appears that these believers all had their own agenda, their own timeline, their own method, their own goal, their own opinion. The bottom line is they didn't know how to work as a team. Too self-sufficient, too self-centered, too self-wise to humbly function in unity with others around them. They just couldn't get along. Fourth, why would Paul remind them that every laborer would receive his own reward for his own labor? Because for some, to some degree or another, they thought God wasn't being fair. Or perhaps there were some who were acting like they could just ride on the efforts of others. Perhaps they felt like justice and equity and reward needed to be administered now rather than in God's time or perhaps even in God's eternity. Let's be honest, these problems, these, these wrong views, unfortunately did not die off 2,000 years ago. They still plague churches today. And our church, I, we are not immune to these temptations and weaknesses. Let's think very practically for a moment. What might be some of the evidences of this subtly misled or arrogant thinking? I've listed these on the back of your salt starter notes in the bulletin. Here are some thoughts that might evidence wrong thinking. This church really needs me. Two, but no one can do it as well as me. What about, I don't think that would have happened without me. Or, I don't need their help. Why can't everyone see that my way is right? Or on the flip side, I can't handle this. You know, we're talking about panic. A sign that I am depending, whether I realize it or one or not, I am depending and leaning on my weakness versus God's strength and sovereignty. How about the last one here? I'm not very appreciated around here. Now granted, there can be an ounce of truth or right perspective in some of those thoughts. But you know as well as I do, for every ounce, there can be a pound of pride and disunity and self-dependence. So on the other hand, what might be some evidences of proper thinking? Evidences that selfish, prideful jealousy and strife are being conquered and that unity is winning the day in our church. Perhaps we would hear things like this. If anything good happens, God did it. We recognize that our lives are nothing more than a testimony of grace. Secondly, no need to stress out. God can handle this. That's not to make light of the crushing pressures and the numerous tears that trials can bring. It is a reminder that God's grace 
is and will be still sufficient. Third, perhaps we hope to hear thoughts like this, I sure need my church family. There are others here who really can do a great job at that. There's a good chance they might be right. We talked about that last week in one of the commentaries. But what about this? We have to do everything possible to stay together for the glory of God. Or lastly, my reward will come in eternity. My Heavenly Father is watching, and I know it. Those are the types of things we want to hear in our church. When you stop and think about it, these incredible lessons and truths, again, they don't just apply to the church. They're awesome for friendships, for spouses, for siblings, even for our relationship with God. Many of these can even be applied to the secular workplace, to our school settings, etc. How much better might our witness be if these humble, honorable attitudes permeated our demeanor in the workplace and in the school, etc. Verse 10, Paul now comes at this from another angle. He says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ. Careful, we must be careful not to replace the gospel in our building project. I mean the ongoing work of the church, not just the physical building project. Your pastor is not the cornerstone of your local church. Your church doesn't rest on the foundation of its programs. Our cleverness and our strategies are not the bedrock of what God wants to do in and through us in this community. And if we are not careful, as Paul said, if we're not careful, we will start to replace the foundation. One stone, one person, one idea at a time. At the heart of it, why would a person do that anyway? It's because whether they realize it or not, they think they know better than God and His Word. We read it last week, the final verse in chapter 2. Who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? Let us not and never be a church who tells God how to build His church. Verse 12. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Remember what Paul said in the intro in chapter 1 of this book. He said, Christ has been confirmed in you, and He will confirm you to the end. If a person spends their Christian life as a poor worker in the kingdom of God using cheap wood, hay, and straw in their efforts, the good news is 
they'll still make it into the kingdom of God. But their efforts will fail the test of fire. The truth will be revealed in the last day. And there will be a reward for those who built with gold, silver, and precious stones. We're looking at the difference between building with the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. God's truths versus my ideas. It's why we must all be and always be avid students of the Word. We need to move from the milk to the meat of the Word so that we can grow and obey and serve and worship with a higher quality, with more sincerity. Like we asked last week, the, the chapter brought it up. So we're supposed to not even use the good minds God gave us? Don't bother preparing your words and communicating effectively. Is that what Paul's saying? Of course not. And Paul addressed that. And he goes on here to say, and you'd better be careful to make sure you're doing a high quality job and using the materials that God alone provides. Of all people, Christians should be examples of excellence based on the wisdom of God, based on the glory of God. Paul continues in verse 16, referring to the building project, the building of the church. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. God builds the church, and the church, each of us, is his temple. Anyone who attempts to destroy the foundations of the church, that is Jesus Christ, will not be tolerated, but will be destroyed by God himself. We, the church, the temple of God, are holy and set apart only for him. As Pastor Mark has said multiple times in the past couple weeks, especially referring to the barn building, the church is no building. It's us. Paul isn't finished yet. He knows our tendency, after all he has said, to still miss the point. Next verse, verse 18, he says, Let no man deceive himself. There's a striking truth here. The devil and unbelieving excuse me, the devil and attacking unbelievers are not our only worry. We need to be aware of the ability that we have to fool ourselves. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't trick yourself. Don't be mistaken. Don't be misled. The verse continues, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. Paul is summarizing again what he has said in the prior verses, in the prior chapters. Remember how we looked last week at Paul spending a chapter and a half 
plus one, emphasizing the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of men. And here he is again. This is the plus sum. He's emphasizing the importance of humbling our thoughts, which are foolishness, to the word of God, which is divine wisdom. Verse 21 continues, For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. We've got everything we need. Remember the intro, chapter 1, verse 4. Paul said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in Him. It's absolutely true. We have all we need in Christ Jesus. Amen? All we need. What a powerful ending to chapter 3. Now I technically have 15 more minutes. And I'm going to take it. Chapter 4, the whole chapter. Let's blitz through it. It's too good. <clears throat> this is so connected to chapter 3. So coming back to the big picture again, the issue that Paul addressed of division in the church, particularly over, over certain Christian leaders and being right and I'm better than you. Here he continues to teach the proper view of each other. Verse 1, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. I'd like to expound on that, but it's pretty straightforward. We're all servants and stewards for God. And we're all held to the same high standard, and that is to be found trustworthy. Can God trust you? Can God trust me? In our own wisdom and strength, of course not. In His wisdom and in His strength, absolutely. Continuing the theme of that last verse in chapter 3, we have not been assigned to a failed mission We've got to remind ourselves that. Romans 8, 37, but in all these things, and if you look at chapter 8, Paul has just finished it talking about the challenges of life. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the challenges of life, all the struggles specifically, and he listed them, tribulations, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Paul is talking about the hard days, the trials, the crushing pressures that come upon believers. He says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Christian friend, the battles for salvation and sanctification are not a close call. It's a total conquer. It's a knockout victory. And again, that is not to belittle the immense pains of the trials that we do go through. It's to magnify the greatness of the victory that we are promised. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. If I were to drop a tattoo on my arm, 
and I'm not planning on it anytime soon, but if I were, perhaps those are the words I would want emblazoned on my skin. I overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved me. Isn't that a passage worth just setting up camp on? Aren't you glad we didn't stop at the end of chapter 3? The rest of this chapter is just as awesome. Next, Paul is about to lay out one of the great keys to daily victory. This is one of the great pillars of truth that specifically defeats pride and jealousy and division and strife. We can't afford to miss this. It's accountability. But it's not just any accountability. There's a lot said these days about accountability. Accountability partners, accountability groups, accountability programs. The elders were just talking about this this week, matter of fact. Paul goes straight to the top and reveals one of the secrets to his passion and persistence and faithfulness with the gospel. Listen to these amazing words in verse 3. I am convinced that if these truths sink deep into our hearts and minds, they will revolutionize the unity and the ministry in our church and in our homes. Verse 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Imagine that. He is incredibly saying, I'm not even aware of any wrongdoing in my life. He goes on to say, yet I am not by this acquitted. He's saying my self-awareness, my personal assessment that I'm not guilty of anything doesn't even mean that I'm not guilty. What does he say at the end? But the one who examines me is the Lord. These wisdom truths shatter the thought, I'm a pretty good person. What's Paul saying? It doesn't matter if you or I think we are perfect. All that matters is what God thinks. He goes on in verse 5 to say, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to the light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. You're not going to reveal just what we've done. He's going to reveal why we've done it in the first place. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul is teaching us to tap into a higher accountability. The highest accountability. The supreme one to whom we will answer. Men will not know the things you or I have thought or done in darkness. But God does. And Scripture tells us He will bring them into the light. The people around us will not know for sure the motives of our hearts, but God does, and He will put them in the open in the day of judgment. Our fear should not be of men, but of God. Now, accountability with other Christian brothers and sisters is important. We are, by Scripture, commanded to confront sin in each other and to teach and admonish one another according to the wisdom of the Word and of Christ that dwells richly in us. But that human relationship must be a very small thing compared to the fact that we will have to answer to God someday. Paul is talking here about what I call living in the court of the one true judge. We never lose sight of the fact that God is watching 
of all the days in the past year, the past three years, Jacqueline came up to me yesterday or day before and said, Leo and I were talking about how we have to remember that God is always watching. I said, oh, praise the Lord, thank you. <laughs> Not all is lost. You probably learned it from a Sunday school teacher, but that's the truth. It, it's a truth that we have to accept like a child. God is watching. We never lose sight of the fact that He is aware and He will call us to give an answer. He is our friend, but He is also our judge. He is our Savior, but He is also our King. The wise man and the wise woman is the person who lives not for the praise of men, but for the praise of God, that by His grace they might hear Him someday say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Again, Paul takes this human accountability even a step further when he says that we should be more concerned with what God thinks of us than even what we think of ourselves. That's a difficult thing to even understand because we all operate off of our mind. But this goes back to a clever man versus a wise God. Our natural tendency is to evaluate ourselves based on what we think of ourselves. The truth is all that matters is what God thinks, what God evaluates, what God judges, what God determines. Thus it behooves us to be in the Word and in prayer, asking the Spirit of God, as we saw last week, who knows the mind and thoughts of God, asking the Spirit to help us to understand more and more what God thinks and values and requires of us. Then, guiding words of truth will not only come to our minds, they will be understood by us. Verses like Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. Think about that. How many times does He have to tell us? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Verse 6. Paul again begins to recap. He keeps taking us back to the big picture. And as if one great key to spiritual success was not enough, he gives us another back-to-back. -back. Verse 6, he says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? Here's the question. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? This is the foolishness of religious pride. It's a lie. Paul says, we didn't create our own wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It was given to us. Why do we act and boast and divide as though we brought these blessings about by some virtue or wisdom or great efforts of our own? Time doesn't allow us to camp out on this treasure of truth like I'd love to, but let us take again note 
of this antidote for jealousy and pride and strife and division in the church and in our homes, in our relationships. We are nothing but recipients of God's love, mercy, and grace. A thankful heart goes a very long way to curing the spiritual ailments in the church and in the home. Verse 8. This section is actually somewhat of a riddle the first time you read it. It was for me. It still is to some degree. Verse 8, he said, You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. I mean, your brain thinking what mine's thinking? Is this the same church? Did two epistles get mixed up in the translations here? No, this is Corinth. He says, you are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Perhaps the best understanding of this that I've seen is that Paul was actually making fun of them. He's mocking them because they thought they were the rich. They thought they were the strongest. They thought they were the wisest. They thought they were prudent. And Paul says, all I can say is I'm not. We are the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even till right now. Very quickly, we see that Paul lived for the service and the blessing of others. And he saw himself for who he truly was. And if the Apostle Paul understands himself to be what he is defining here, how much more so should the church of Corinth? How much so should you and I? Paul chose to view himself as the lesser among God's people. He said, who are we? You want to know who Paul is and Apollos and Cephas? We are the servants and the stewards in the church. What an example. Again, how many ailments, spiritual ailments, and perhaps physical, is the body of Christ suffering from because we see ourselves as being deserving of honor. We deserve to be served rather than being the servants in the church. Verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul's ultimate goal was not to make them feel bad. There's an incredible truth of counseling here. His goal was not to make them feel bad. His goal was not to just shame them. There is very little, if any, victory in shame and in feeling bad. Haven't we all seen it? 
feeling bad often leads to committing the same sin again and again and again. Paul's goal went much deeper. It was to correct the error of the attitude and the behavior and to teach them, to teach them what is right. It is not enough to be taught just what is wrong. We need to be taught what is right. And what an excellent example of this Paul gives. Verse 15, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now, some struggle with that thought right there. I know I've struggled with it before. I've wrestled with it. Let's just say, it is purely biblical. What does 1 Peter 5, verse 3 say, specifically to the elders of the church? Prove to be examples to the flock. Be someone they can look at and imitate. What did Paul say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12? Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Hebrews 13.7 couldn't be clearer. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The key is in the last phrase, imitate their faith. Paul is simply saying, as I follow Christ, follow me. Verse 17 to the end of the chapter. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Words versus power. And it's not that power does not have words. We live by the word. But it's the words that have power. Paul is saying, we want to see the proof. Is our life all talk and human effort and wisdom? Or is there proof? Is there evidence concrete evidence of divine, life-changing power in you and in me and in this church family. The secrets to that are right here in the text. God has been so good to us in these chapters. These are just the life-changing and life-empowering truths we need. Do not underestimate the power of humbling one's mind to the wisdom of God. Do not underestimate the power of being thankful and of of seeing ourselves as servants of everyone else in the church, as seeing ourselves as servants to our spouse, as servants to our brothers and sisters, etc. Moms, I trust some of these truths on jealousy and strife and on thankfulness and 
humility, servant spirit will guide and bless you as you lovingly teach and disciple your children. I know it's an amazing guide to me as a dad. We've covered a lot of ground today, two chapters. To summarize, here are seven truths and applications that are hitting home with me this week, and I trust there, and I'm sure there are more. You can add to this list. You see these on the back of your salt starter again. But here are seven points to get our application gears going. Number one, it's time to grow up. Let's be honest and identify jealousy and strife in our own hearts and lives. Second, we all work hard together, but it's God alone who causes spiritual growth. And just in case we missed the last point since Paul repeated it, remember, we are nothing in this process. God is everything. Number four, we're all servants and stewards. There is no hero in this church family but King Jesus. Fifth, live in the court. Don't go to court. Live in the court of the one true judge. This is the ultimate accountability. Number six, work hard because there is a divine reward for each individual who so serves God faithfully. And last, be careful not to replace the foundation of Christian living. That is Jesus Christ alone. Know Him. Worship Him. Love Him. And serve Him. As the truth saying goes, He's all we've got and He's all we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed once again at the Word of God that you would not only save us, but then give us a wisdom and a strength to follow you and to live for you and to share you well with the lost. Lord, we admit there is spiritual infancy in every one of our hearts. There are areas of weakness, independence, self-wisdom, self-sufficiency in all of our hearts but how we rejoice to know that there is a, great, a grace that is greater than all our sin. Lord, we ask that you would continue, and we know you will, to give us the grace to go home this day, this week, and to allow you to purge from our minds and our attitudes some of the jealousy that causes strife in our marriages and in our homes and in our church. Lord, we look forward to seeing how a thankful spirit and a servant mindset will yield peace and purity and gentleness and reasonableness and the fruits of mercy and your good fruits. A mindset, Lord, that will enable us to shed the guilt of hypocrisy and know that we are being sincere before you and others only by your grace, but we thank you that you will give it. Lord, may you bless our church family as we grow together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.